Thanks for tuning in to Tax Strategy Digest, where we explore the fascinating world of finance. Join us as we dive into the stories, insights, and experiences of experts, thought leaders, and everyday people who are making a difference in this field. Through engaging conversations and thought-provoking discussions, we'll take a deep dive into the latest research, trends, and innovations shaping finance. So sit back, relax, and get ready to learn something new on this journey here with us. Welcome to this episode of Tax Strategy Digest. Today, our guest is John Bailey, who is the co-founder of OneFund. John helps democratize access to top-tier private equity and venture capital funds for everyday investors. John, thanks so much for joining me on this episode today. I'm excited to dive into what you do. Yeah, Paul, thanks so much for having us. Um, obviously, big fan of what you guys are doing. Um, and honestly, when it comes to private equity and venture capital, tax isn't something that people spend a ton of time talking or thinking about, uh, but it's something that they should be. And so I've really been looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, likewise. So, uh, you know, tell me a little bit about your story, your background. How'd you get here? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll, I'll give you the uh, I'll give you the short the short version. Um, but I spent the last few years of my career before starting one fund at a growth equity, private equity fund called General Atlantic. And General Atlantic is this really big, you know, $90 billion plus private equity and growth equity fund. I love the time that I spent there. It was a really amazing experience. Got to meet with founders of really incredible companies all over the world uh, and help them grow their business. And so it was a really fantastic experience. While I was there, you know, I was helping, you know, General Atlantic go out and, and try to make uh, basically, you know, the highest return possible for their investors, right? And so I started to learn a lot about the industry and I started to wonder, hey, I would love to invest in a fund like General Atlantic, uh, you know, pr preferably them or, or a fund similar to them. And what I realized was that you really couldn't. Um, these funds, these top tier private equity and venture capital funds, they have minimum investment, minimum check sizes of $5 million, $10 million. And that's just really prohibitive for, let's be frank, 99% of people out there, if not 999 right? Uh, it's funny, I was having a conversation with somebody who works in fundraising for one of these big funds, and they were saying, yeah, you know, we're interested in getting more retail investors, more people involved. We're thinking about reducing our minimum check size from $10 million to $5 million. And I was like, okay, that's great. Like, I'm glad you guys are interested in this, but $5 million doesn't move the needle for many people, right? Uh, it doesn't make it that much more accessible. And so I was chatting with my co-founder, Spencer Maslow, who worked in investor relations at a hedge fund. So he was doing this exact type of thing. And he was like, yes, there like, is definitely a need out there for this. And we decided to do it. And so we built one fund with the idea of building a platform where individual investors can log in look at top tier private equity and venture capital funds, diligence them, look at the material that those funds uh, provide uh, for the diligence process and invest at fractions of the minimum investment size um, with our real goal of just helping people better diversify their portfolios, save for retirement, and really just get access to that top tier uh, type of investment vehicles that, you know, ultra wealthy institutions and individuals have access to. Awesome. And is there, is there a reason why their minimums are so high that that five, 10 million mark? Yeah. So th there's a couple of reasons. Um, but one of the biggest reasons has to do with the fact that it's just from a lot of these uh, investment shops, 
it's not worth it to them to deal with investors who are coming in at lower check sizes. And that's for a couple of reasons. The first is that it just becomes really tricky. Um, it's much more effective for them to have a relationship with someone who's going to write a $5 million check than a $50,000 check. Uh, many investors who are investing $50,000 of capital are going to do just as much diligence as somebody investing $5 million of capital. And the reason for that is that $50,000 is a lot of money. Um, and so people really want to be aware of that. So just from a unit economic standpoint, it doesn't work as well from them. Um, and then the other is from a reporting standpoint, um, having to distribute tax documents, having to deal with accounting, having to deal with communication with thousands of different investors uh, is really difficult when the industry is so person to person. And so one thing that we've spent a lot of time building out at one fund on our side is the tech platform side of things, automating tax, automating accounting, um, building portals where people can log in to access all their information um, and making it feel a lot more like, you know, logging into your Fidelity account as opposed to, uh, you know, a one-on-one -on -one relationship and picking up the phone. And obviously we do, we have relationships with all of our members, um, but trying to make that as helpful and, and technological as possible for them is really helpful. So why is it that people and institutions in general are investing in private equity and venture capital funds? Yeah. So the biggest reason is returns, right? Over the last you know, 25 years, I think there's some data from Cambridge Associates that shows that you know, a private equity and venture capital funds, an index has outperformed the S&P 500 by about five percentage points per year. And that's that's massive, right? You know, when you compound that over the course of 10, 15 years, you know, it, you're getting multiple higher, multiples higher returns than you are investing in public markets. Um, the other is diversification, right? The vast majority of the U.S. economy is actually in privately held companies. No matter how diversified you are, in um, no matter how diversified you are in public markets, you can only really have exposure to a, a sliver of the U.S. economy that's held in, in public stocks. By investing in private equity venture capital, you just get instant diversification. And not to get too academic, but diversification is really the only true free lunch in investing. Um, any Most other ways to try to beat the market um, really don't work. There's you know, lots of Nobel Prize winning work out there that that discusses that. But if you're able to diversify your portfolio, it's actually shown that you get higher risk adjusted returns. And so this idea that by investing in, uh, you know, if you have no alternative investments, no private market exposure, and you can invest in a private equity or venture capital fund, you just get higher risk adjusted returns. That's the, you know, that's the golden goose that everybody is chasing after. Nice. So I like that you mentioned the diversification because my next question was actually, um, obviously, if you're getting a higher return, that that means that you're probably taking on a bit higher of risk. So could you talk about kind of the risk associated with um, these funds? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that part of this will kind of start to, to dive into um, your field, which is uh, about tax and kind of like starting to segue into that. Um, but when it comes to risk, if you think about private markets, there's really three different buckets that you can invest in. There's venture capital, which is like super, super early stage funds. There's buyout, which is what people traditionally think of when they think of private equity. And then in the middle, there's there's growth. And so venture capital, the big names are like, you know, your Sequoia, your Andrews and Horowitz. 
Um, buyout is sort of, you know, your KKR, your Blackstones, companies that, that you know, people may be familiar with. Um, and they operate on like vastly different sides and they have vastly different risk profiles. So venture capitalists are going out and they're placing a ton of relatively small bets into very early stage companies, companies that have a lot of risk. A lot of those companies could go to zero. But what they're trying to do to de-risk things is by placing, you know, a hundred different bets. They're betting that a couple of them will go up 10, 50 X and provide the entire returns for the portfolio. Whereas on the buyout side, they're buying much more established companies that aren't growing as quickly. And what they're doing to juice up their returns is they're bringing on um, typically leverage. And so that leverage also implies some risk. You need to make sure you're able to pay down uh, those debt payments, but they're investing in much less risky companies um, that tend to be a lot more stable in their cash flows. That whole like concept about risk, I think, you know, there's a few different ways that you can invest in private markets as well. And we're obviously very bullish on investing via funds, right? That's that's our entire thesis, that you should go find a, a venture capital fund or a private equity fund that you really like and invest your money with them. And they'll go out and find the different companies. Over the last few years, like crowdfunding for startup fundraising has become very popular. Companies like AngelList, for example, where you can go in and pick individual startups to invest in. That can be a lot of fun. It can be really tricky to make money and it goes exactly back to the, the risk conversation, right? When you're investing directly into an early stage company, there is a very, very high degree of risk that that company will go to zero. Uh, I think something like 90% of startups fail within a couple of years, right? Um, versus when you're investing with a fund, you are helping to de-risk that a little bit, hopefully because you're investing with professionals who have been doing this for a really long time, have seen literally thousands and thousands of deals, but also you're investing in a portfolio of different companies. So when you give your money to a VC fund, they're going out and placing, you know, hopefully 30, 50, 100 bets into different companies. Um, if you wanted to go out and try to replicate that on your own, it would be really, really, really hard, not just to literally go through the process of making those investments, but to make sure you had enough deal flow that you are looking at good companies. You know, a lot of these VC funds will look at literally thousands and thousands of companies um, before they uh, invest in a handful of them. Um, and then the other aspect I think is just having diversification within your private market portfolio. Um, I'm personally invested in venture capital funds, growth equity funds, and private equity funds. And so trying to just cover as much of that uh, ecosystem as possible um, is really, really, really helpful because some asset classes will have good years one year and bad years the next year. And so making sure you're not overexposed to one fund, to one particular type of fund um, is very helpful there. Perfect. And what are some of the ways that investors can invest in these funds tax advantaged? Yeah, I, I'm glad you asked. So there's, one particular way that we've seen a lot of our members come through and invest in a tax advantage way, and that's through a self-directed IRA or individual retirement account. People are probably familiar with these from either their employer or going through on Vanguard and investing in, say, you know, the S&P 500. But there are ways that you can set up a, a self-directed IRA that you have a lot more flexibility over what you invest in. 
So we, for example, have a partnership with Rocket Dollar, which is a great platform that makes it really easy for people to go and do this. Um, but you can set up your own self-directed IRA and really invest it in almost anything you want with very little restrictions. Um, and so we've seen people come through and invest out of a self-directed IRA into one fund many, many, many times. Um, typically, the way that that will work is, you know, depending on if it's Roth or not, you'll either get taxed upfront only once or you'll only get taxed at the end when you sell your assets. So it's a way to go from just pretty much like roughly speaking, cutting in half your tax burden. Um, and people have, have really, really enjoyed using that with us. And we try to make it as easy as possible for people to do that. Another way, and I may be jumping the gun here a little bit, but one of the biggest uh, potential tax benefits that people get from investing in private markets, in particular venture capital, is what's called qualified small business stock. Um, and Paul, I know you're you're probably intimately familiar with qualified small business stock, so jump in if I if I mess any of this up. But essentially, the federal government gives out tax breaks for investing or starting small businesses to try to help grow entrepreneurship in the U.S. And one of the Actually, as an investor in a venture capital fund, you can potentially get a lot of advantages from this. And so if you're investing in companies that I believe have under $50 million of assets, which most early stage venture capital funds are doing this, uh, and you're getting original shares of that stock, of, of that company's stock, you can be eligible for up to 100% um, hundred percent off on capital gains, which is just absolutely massive, right? Um, most people kind of think about this as only being available to entrepreneurs who are starting businesses. But I think one of the best ways to get tax advantages is to be an entrepreneur and run your own business. One of the second best ways is to invest in entrepreneurs. And it's really funny, you know, well, actually, I'll, I'll pause there because, Paul, I'm curious what your experience has been like with QSBS and especially with uh, if you know any people who have invested in funds that have given back those benefits to their investors? Yeah, really good question. So, I mean, most of the people that we work with actually, um, they can't use the QSBS and they always come to us and they're looking for it because obviously it's, it, you know, who wants to pay capital gains taxes? Um, yeah. And so if, if, they, if they didn't have to, um, then they wouldn't be giving us a call. So, I mean, we really focus on the deferred sales trust, trying to help people um, defer those capital gains taxes as long as possible. If something like the QSBS, you know, doesn't work for them. Um, but it's been really interesting. And a lot of our, um, a lot of our note holders will actually look towards funds uh, just like you guys offer. So I'm really excited yeah. to kind of make that connection and be able to um, just provide another opportunity for our note holders. So it should be um, really, really awesome. And that's why I'm so glad that we got connected as well. Um, but I, you know, I, the big thing I really wanted to ask you is because obviously this, this all sounds so good and dandy and everything sounds fantastic. And um, obviously with, with the good, there is bad. So what are some of the potential drawbacks that, you know, people see investors are having with the private equity VC funds? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that. Um, and actually, I'll, I'll start off with kind of the QSBS stuff because it sounds sure. really, really fantastic on the surface and it can be really fantastic. But it also, you know, the my description of QSBS was about three sentences. <laughs> the internal revenue code describing QSBS is about that thick, right? Yeah. So like there's just a ton of different 
rules around how to qualify for this stuff. And that's a pain in the ass, right? Like as an individual to have to navigate that, I've heard stories of people who thought something was going to qualify, going to qualify for QSBS. And then the IRS was like, nope, it doesn't. You actually do owe these taxes. Um, and so like, j- just to give an example, um, you know, it has, for example, there can't be different corporate developments in the company over its lifespan. So it can't undergo certain changes like mergers, uh, increased asset sizes or, or share transfers or stuff like that. That can eliminate it from QSBS. It can't be in certain industries. And what becomes very frustrating is financial services, I believe, does not qualify, whereas some fintech companies do qualify. And anybody who works in fintech or financial services knows that the line between those two is very, very, very thin. And so there can be, things can get caught up. That's one of the advantages that I like about doing it through funds is it becomes the fund's job to, um, hopefully it becomes the fund's job to make sure that as many of their companies qualify as possible. And so you can take advantage of their increased um, um assets that that fund has in terms of legal support, accounting support, et cetera, to make sure as many of those are going to qualify as possible. Um, But I think tying into like your original question on some of the downsides of, from a tax perspective, because we talked about a lot of the advantages, what I will say is all of these downsides are downsides that the fund itself should be aware of. And one thing that you should be doing in diligence as an investor. And one thing that we do with all funds that go on our platform is try to make sure that the fund is doing everything possible to minimize this impact to investors. So one like classic um, potential drawback is this concept of like phantom income or unrelated business taxable income, UBTI. And this is an instance where you invest in a private equity fund. The private equity fund that you invest in generates some revenue, uh, some income, either unrelated business taxable income or quote unquote phantom income. Um, And that's income that's not distributed to you as an investor, but could generate a taxable event for you. Um, So an example of this might be that the fund realizes um, some uh, dividend income, but doesn't distribute it. Um, Or that the fund generates some debt financed income through issuing a loan and getting back um, some coupons from it, but doesn't issue that revenue to you. So you could incur a tax burden without actually receiving any income to offset this. Funds will try to minimize this. Um, And actually, most of the funds that we talk to say that, you know, their past funds have not incurred this type of income um, and that they typically will set up like blocker entities to stop it from affecting their LPs. But it can happen. And it's something that you really want to be aware of when you are looking um, at making a private equity or, or venture capital investment. I don't know if you've run into sort of like phantom income or, or UBTI issues, but they can be a pain. And we spend a lot of time thinking about how to make sure that doesn't happen for people who use our platform. Although there's no way to guarantee it sometimes. Yeah, definitely. And I, you know, kind of while we're on the same topic of fees and, and paying money, um, I do want to talk about the fees that are associated with one fund, your platform. Um, providing these investors with access to be able to invest in these, you know, larger funds without having to meet that same threshold of, you know, five, $10 million requirement. Yeah, absolutely. So the private equity and venture capital industry works very, very different from investing in public stocks. You know, you just think about, 
you know, where you invest in public stocks, right? You go on your app, you go to Fidelity, you, you make a purchase, right? Uh, through the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ. Private equity venture capital are very different. You enter what's called a limited partnership. Uh, typically that involves, you know, signing a, basically a contract saying like, yep, yeah, I'm giving you money. Um, I'm going to get the dividends of that money essentially is what it says. Um, and so it, it operates very differently. And the way that the fees work, um, operate equally differently. So what's pretty typical in the private equity and venture capital space is what's called two and 20. And sometimes it can be, you know, like 1.5 and 20, two and 30, but it's generally around two and 20. And what that means is as an investor in a private equity or venture capital fund, you typically are going to pay 2% per year on assets that you give. And then you're going to pay 20% of uh, the returns that the fund generates uh, to the private equity fund. And so, for example, if I put in, you know, if you put in $100, uh, they're going to take out $2 per year for managing the money. And this is because they have really big teams. Part of what I talked about earlier in terms of it being an advantage that they have teams, because it means they will look at literally hundreds, if not thousands of companies um, over the course of the fund and deciding what to invest in. But they need to have a team in order to do that. And so they take out 2% to pay them. And then the 20% is say they managed to turn that $100 into $200, um, they get 20% of the return. So 100 to 200, $100 in returns, they take $20 out as a fee. Um, so what's really important when you're diligencing a private equity fund is you want to look at the net returns. And so they're going to always give you two numbers. They're going to give you the gross returns and they're going to give you the net returns. You... The gross returns are basically useless, in my opinion. You just want to know what the net returns are. Um, it's helpful from the perspective of, hey, like, are their investments doing well? But if the net returns, which is what you get after fees, are not um, commensurate with the risk that you're taking investing in the fund, then it's just really not worth it. So gross returns are the fund are the returns that the fund generates before they charge you fees. And net returns are the returns after fees are charged. Um, and so like on our platform, for example, um, we make gross and net returns, uh, historical gross and net returns of the funds on our platform available to our members. So they can see, okay, how much cash are people actually getting um, at the end of the day from this fund? And uh, just understanding how fees work in the private equity and venture capital space um, is really important for people to know before they get into it. One thing I definitely want to touch on is obviously we talked about a $5 million barrier to entry with these larger funds. What does a barrier to entry look like with one fund? Yeah, great question. So um, on our platform, the minimums are literally fractions of a percent of minimums um, from the funds that we partner with. The actual size of that varies, um, but you know, think as low as you know $10,000. So how did you work with these funds to be able to offer this to your clients? Yeah, it's a really great question. Um, so my co-founder and I worked in the alternative space for you know several years before starting one fund. And so we were lucky to make a lot of contacts in the industry. One thing that's very frustrating about the industry, I think, for a lot of people is just how relationship driven it is. You know, you think back to my explanation for why the minimum check sizes are $5 million. And a lot of it is just because it's a very relationship-driven industry. 
Um, that's also how it works when it comes to finding funds. And so what we ended up doing when we started this was we started talking to a lot of people that we knew saying, hey, this is what we're thinking about doing, seeing what funds would be interested in partnering with us. Um, and honestly, what most funds that we talk to are very open to it, right? If you're able to get them capital at their minimum, they're usually willing to, to work with you. Um, the challenge is getting to that minimum and also the challenge is getting connected with the funds. They can often be very hard to find. Um, and so, you know, over the past year, we've probably looked at a hundred or so venture capital and private equity funds, and we've put a handful of them on our portal, you know, literally three or four different funds on our portal, um, out of that sample. And so we take really seriously the diligence process that we do with the private equity and venture that we do with the funds that we're looking at. And so, for example, always making sure that you're looking at what their past returns are. We want to avoid putting funds on the platform that are first time funds. We want people to really be able to go in and say, okay, you know, they've done one, two, three, seven, eight funds before this. And these are what those returns look like. Um, we also want to do something that's called uh, deal attribution, which is kind of going like one step deeper than looking at past returns. Um, because this industry is so relationship driven, you guys are probably seeing a trend. The way that you find companies to invest in is also very relationship driven. And so the people who work at the company are really, really, really important. Say, you know, fund one and fund two that a private equity fund has have performed very well. Um, I want to see that in the next fund that they're raising, the key people involved in fund one and fund two are still involved. Um, if the, you know, that funds returns, if their previous returns were driven by one or two rainmakers who were bringing in a lot of really great deals and they've since left, um, that can be a bit of a red flag. And actually I'd start to say, Hey, what fund did those two people go to? Because I'd be potentially interested in investing there. Uh, and so I think the diligence process is just really important when you're looking at potential VC or PE funds to invest in. So how are you guys finding your, um, your investors? I mean, how do your investors find you um, in order to be able to do this? And I mean, are you working with financial advisors around the country? Uh, do you work with, you know, CPAs? What, what is your way that you guys are um, getting in touch with these people, helping more clients to invest with uh, these firms that maybe they don't have the full 5 million to invest with? Yeah, absolutely. So we have relationships with a few different financial advisors across the country who use our platform um, to provide alternatives to their members or to their um, advisees. Uh, a lot of it is through word of mouth, is through people hearing about us and getting connected. Um, we run a, a newsletter um, with knock on wood soon closing in on you know, five, 10,000 subscribers on Substack called Capital Call. Um, which is where I bi-weekly will talk about different issues that people should be thinking of as an LP in a venture capital fund. I think a lot of the media out there on VC or PE is sort of about how to find deals and it's made for professionals in the industry, but there's not a lot of material out there that's like, hey, I'm thinking of investing in a PE or VC fund. Um, and so we publish a bi-weekly newsletter on that. Um, Honestly, doing podcasts and webinars like this is a great way to like meet new people and get connected with people and, and have conversations. And so a lot of it is through trying to do as much sort of like educational content as possible around how the industry works. Because like I said before, it's very different than public stocks. And so we just have a passion for talking about it with people.
I love it. So I know you said it's relationship based. How does that relationship, um, you know, between you and your investor uh, kind of look? I mean, are they, what are they receiving from you on an annual basis? Yeah, great question. So when we invest in a private equity or venture capital fund, um, they will send us updates on their companies. Um, they will send us quarterly or annual reports on how the financials are doing. And we have our own accounting and legal team that will then look at those and and kind of chop them up and distribute the relevant reports back out to our members. And so our members will get you know quarterly or annual updates in terms of how the fund's performance is doing. Um, the other thing is, you know, we have conversations with everybody who uses our platform. Um, and we really pride ourselves on that. And so, because we know that private equity and venture capital is a very, very, you know, new different space for most people who are who are investing on one fund. And so we pride ourselves on making ourselves really available. And so people, you know, get, you know, those automated updates on, hey, here's how the portfolio is doing. But also we just email and call everybody and are like, hey, any questions? Do you want to talk about this? Let's hop on the phone. Um, and that, that's been a really rewarding uh, rewarding part of this. So there is one thing I do want to uh, circle back to. We've talked about it in the past, but I want to make sure that the listeners uh, understand this. And so um, it's a little bit different than, you know, maybe investing in like a money market account where you kind of have access to your money. Could you talk about the the time periods or time constraints that are typically associated with um, investing these funds and when you should expect to actually get that money back? Uh, yes, the famous uh, liquidity, illiquidity question when it comes to private equity. Uh, <laughs> and this is really, really important because it's actually where, once again, not to get too academic, but it's actually where a lot of the returns, excess returns in alpha are derived from, derived from in private markets. So unlike in public stock, public equities or the stock market where you can buy and sell whatever you want, when you make an investment into a private equity or venture capital fund, that money is locked up for minimum five years. Um, and what ends up happening is the fund will go out and invest your money into these privately held companies, but they may not sell that company and realize distributions from it for five, seven, 10 years. And so you really shouldn't put any money into a private equity or venture capital fund that you feel like you're going to need um, five or 10 years from now. Or one thing that we always ask people is like, or say to people is like, hey, you really shouldn't be putting money into a private equity or venture capital fund that you're going to need uh, in the near future. When you take a look at how endowments, uh, for example, or pension plans invest, they only put, if I'm remembering the data correctly, about 15 to 20% of their assets into private equity or venture capital. So even though I said earlier, yeah, you know, it outperforms about five percentage points per year over the last 20 years, 25 years, funds are endowments and different institutions like that. You think, hey, if it's outperforming, why shouldn't I just put all my money in? Well, one part of that is you want diversification. The other part of that is that it's very illiquid. And so you want to make sure that you're not putting too much of your money into it. I personally target about... Um, trying to get to about 20% allocation and kind of mirroring what those endowments are doing. So 20% in private equity or venture capital. Um, so that illiquidity is something that you really want to be aware of. But that illiquidity is also, like I hinted to earlier, it is 
fundamentally part of the reason why private equity and venture capital funds outperform. So there's this concept called an illiquidity premium, which is this idea that if I'm going to put my investment into something that is liquid, aka I can get my cash out whenever I want, um, you're going to be paying for that liquidity in the form of slightly lower returns. And that's because the liquidity makes the investment more attractive, more people come in, it pushes down returns. Um, whereas when you invest in an illiquid asset, um, because that asset is a liquid, investors are going to demand a higher return on their investment. And so you get what's called an illiquidity premium. Uh, and that means that basically by investing in an illiquid asset, uh, you should be getting a higher return than you would for investing in a comparable asset that is more liquid. And so honestly, if you have money that you're not going to need for the next five, 10 years, and you're not investing it in an illiquid asset, um, you're losing out on potential excess returns. Totally. And John, I wanted to bring up as well, you mentioned that you were actually going to be writing um, I forget whether it was a book or like an ebook about uh, the private equity and venture capital space. Uh, would you mind talking about that so that whenever that does come out, uh, some of these listeners could check that out? Yeah, absolutely. So at some point in the in the next few months, probably early Q1, um, we're going to be publishing an ebook on just general how the private equity and venture capital industry works why people invest in it, what makes it different uh, than public markets, um, how to think about fees, how to think about returns, um, and really just going to try to make it pretty short and digestible. But yeah, we're gonna, it's going to be in an ebook form. Uh, we haven't yet uh, figured out the title yet, probably uh, Key 101, and then hopefully something catchy at the end of it that uh, we'll see what ChatGPT recommends for titles. <laughs> um, but when it comes out, I'll be sure to... Uh, to kick a copy over to you. Um, but it's been a fun work in progress over the summer and the last couple of months for sure. Awesome. Well, I love it. And um, I always like to ask uh, everyone that comes on here, what is your why? Why do you do what you do? Why did you guys start One Fund? Yeah, so I kind of grew up in a household that did not really discuss personal finance. Um, and I'm sure a lot of listeners can empathize with that. Um, growing up for much of my life, um, my dad drove a taxi, my mom worked in a public school. Um, and so personal finance and literacy around personal finance, to be honest, was not especially high. Um, and I ended up getting to college. Um, and I was like, I want to learn about this. Like, I don't want to be kind of in the dark on how this stuff works. And so I ended up taking a class that just completely changed my life. Um, it was an introduction to finance class. I had this fantastic professor um, named Christopher Manos. He's uh, absolutely incredible and completely changed the trajectory of my life. And the thing that he taught me that really made me go, wow, was I've been taught my whole life to save, right? Save, put your money in a savings account, um, and you know, you'll be able to retire one day. And he just showed very simply with the math, if you put 10% of your income into a savings account, you're never going to be able to retire. You might be able to retire for like the final five years of your life. Um, what you need to do is you need to invest the money. And he showed that by putting money in a savings account with uh, interest and inflation where they typically are, you lose money uh, in real dollars. 
Um, right now we're at a very unique time where that's not the case for this year, but I guarantee you it's not gonna be the case in the future. And it certainly hasn't been the case for the past 10, 20 years. Um, and that just kind of blew my mind. Like it just changed the whole way that I thought about finance. It changed the entire way that I thought about saving. And so that got me really interesting. Okay, how should I be investing? Um, and eventually I started learning about ETFs and, you know, Vanguard and mutual funds and retirement accounts. And when I got to working in the private equity industry, it just sort of opened up this whole other area for me where I was like, wow, I really didn't have a good idea of how this worked. And I ended up seeing how high those returns were, um, how well these funds performed on average. And it kind of frustrated me that more people didn't have access to it. And so I really wanted to create a platform where we could enable more people to invest their money in different assets, uh, chase higher returns, get more diversification. Um, and it's been a really, really fun journey building it so far. Perfect. Well, John, um, first and foremost, I just want to thank you for, for coming on and, uh, sharing all this with us. If there's an investor who's listening and they want to know more about one fund, or if there's an advisor listening, who's looking to partner with you. So, because maybe some of their clients could really benefit from your service, how should they reach out? Yeah, so feel free to email me at john at onefundinvestments.com. Um, you can also go onto our website, onefundinvestments.com. That's O-N-E-F-U-N-D investments.com. And you can sign up um, to request to join, sign up for our newsletter, um, and we can schedule some time to talk. But Paul, it was really lovely being on. Uh, it's always a, a fun conversation chatting with you. Um, and I'm excited to keep following what you guys are doing as well. Likewise, John, can't wait to uh, maybe down the road do this again. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. All right. See ya.